Hi everyone. I'm just gonna assume that um, I guess someone introduced me, so I'm gonna just jump right into our passage. The passage comes from John 14 verses 15 to 31. You can follow along with me. I think there's a slide. If you love me, keep my commands, and I will ask the Father, and he will give you another advocate to help you and be with you forever, the Spirit of Truth. The world cannot accept him because it neither sees him nor knows him, but you know him, for he lives with you and will be in you. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. Before long, the world will not see me anymore, but you will see me because I live, you also will live. On that day, you'll realize that I am in my Father and you are in me and I am in you. Whoever has my commands and keeps them is the one who loves me. The one who loves me will be loved by my Father and I too will love them and show myself to them. Then Judas, not Judas Iscariot, said, But Lord, why do you intend to show yourself to us and not to the world? Jesus replied, Anyone who loves me will obey my teaching. My Father will love them and we will come to them and make our home with them. Anyone who does not love me will not obey my teaching. These words you hear are not my own. They belong to the Father who sent me. All this I have spoken while still with you, but the Advocate, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, will teach you all things and will remind you of everything I have said to you. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give you. I do not give, you, give to you as the world gives. Do not let your hearts be troubled and do not be afraid. You heard me saying, I am going away and I am coming back to you. If you love me, you will be glad that I am going to the Father, for the Father is greater than I. I have told you now before it happens, so that when it does happen, you will believe. I will not say much more to you, for the prince of this world is coming. He has no hold over me, but he comes so that the world may learn that I love the Father and do exactly what my Father has commanded me. Come now, let us leave. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. And Jesus, thank you for your word that you spoke to us. Now open your word to our hearts as well, that we might hear from you what you want us to hear. We open our hearts and our minds to you in Jesus' name. Amen. The topic of today's sermon is spiritual warfare. We just read our passage, John 14. And at first uh, read, you might, you might wonder, what does this passage have anything to do with spiritual warfare? For some of us, the word spiritual warfare might conjure up images of exorcism, like you know, casting out demons like Jesus did in many of the stories in the Bible. And that's certainly one aspect of spiritual warfare, but that's not the um, focus of today's sermon. And maybe some other, others of us, when we think about the word spiritual warfare, we think about um, some kind of battle out there in the heavenly realm somewhere, but not quite sure how it you know, is relevant to us here today. So what I want to do is uh, today is to show that spiritual warfare does happen in our everyday life. And then show how we might fight in it. Okay? And the way I want to approach this sermon is to ask three questions. The first question is, why does Jesus give the command, if you love me, keep my commands? The second question is, if we are to keep his commands, what commands? And question number three, how do we keep his commands? Okay, three questions. So first, why does Jesus give the command, if you love me, keep my commands? Actually, in our passage alone, Jesus gives this command three different ways. Uh, Verse 21, whoever has my commands and keeps them is the one who loves me. And also in verse 23, anyone who loves me will obey my teaching. So this principle is very important to Jesus. 
we must obey His commands. And this shows that we love Him. But how are we to understand this principle and how is it connected to spiritual warfare? What helps is to go all the way back to Adam and Eve, the first two humans, and the, and the very first spiritual warfare for mankind when, when Satan came and tempted them. So when God created them, he gave them this garden full of food. He, pro- he provided for them everything that they needed, but he also gave them a command, a word. Genesis 2.16 says, And the Lord God commanded the man, You are free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for when you eat of it, you will certainly die. So God gave them a command. And then Satan came to deceive man, and their encounter is the first spiritual warfare. Satan comes and says to Eve in Genesis 3.4-5, You will not certainly die. The serpent said to the woman, For God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So two words, two words, a word from God and a word from Satan, directly define God's word. And the question is, whose word, whose word will Adam and Eve obey? Will they obey God's word? Or will they obey Satan's? And this is the first spiritual warfare mankind encounters. In that story, if you know the story, uh, we, we, we read that Adam and Eve both give in to Satan's word and obey him. And the principle, the principle behind this is this. We submit or we trust ourselves to the one whose words we obey. We submit or trust ourselves to the one whose words we obey. Romans 6.16 says, Don't you know that when you offer yourselves to someone as obedient slaves, you are slaves to the one you obey? whether you are slaves to sin, which leads to death, or to obedience, which leads to righteousness. When Adam and Eve faced spiritual warfare and obeyed (coughs) Satan's words, they were submitting to Satan and his words. By doing so, they came under the authority of Satan. Or as Romans said, they became slaves of Satan. They had to leave the Garden of Eden, the place you know where God had supplied for them and um, God's kingdom was expanding from, and then they had to go outside to the world outside, where Satan would become the prince of this world, which is the title we read, we read, and even in our own passage in John fourteen. So unfortunately, because Adam and Eve gave themselves over to the authority of Satan, all their descendants after them, all of humanity, will be born into the kingdom where Satan is the ruler or prince. But within the kingdom where Satan rules, God raises up a small group called Israel to represent his kingdom, to be a light into the world of darkness. And of course, like he did for Adam and Eve, God gives Israel his word, his commands to follow, including the Ten Commandments. And the question was, would they obey God's word or the lies and deceptions of Satan? It's the same warfare. And interestingly, Israel's blessings, Israel's victory over other kingdoms, the kingdoms where Satan ruled, didn't hinge on how large their armies were. No, the way that they would defeat the enemies was simply rest on if they would have obeyed God's word or not. You can read stories of Gideon where they were supposed to shrink their armies to 300 in order to fight the tens of thousands. Or the story of Joshua where they were supposed to walk around the wall of Jericho seven times or seven days. It's because this is how spiritual warfare 
is always fought obedience to God's word and not Satan's. And we know that Israel over and over again falls just as Adam and Eve did and they disobey God. All of humanity has fallen into the hands of Satan and came under his authority. And it was into this environment, into a world that had become enslaved to Satan, that Jesus came. And just as the devil, see, just as the devil had come to the first humans, Adam and Eve, in creation to deceive them and enslave them, he came to Jesus in the desert after Jesus fasted for 40 days to tempt him. See, he, the Satan, Satan wanted to bring Jesus under his hold, under his authority, and so he comes to tempt him to obey his word and not God's word. Again, two words, God's word and Satan's word. Whose word would Jesus obey? It's spiritual warfare. But where Adam and Eve failed, we know that Jesus prevailed. Jesus loved his father and showed it by obeying his word. At every point from the temptations in the desert all the way to the cross, Jesus battled this spiritual warfare. And at every point, Jesus obeyed God not Satan. And this is why, this is why even in our passage, John 14, 30 to 31, it says, I will not say much more to you for the prince of this world is coming. And we know who he is. He has no hold over me, but he comes so that the world may learn that I love the father and do exactly what my father has commanded me. Satan has no hold, no authority over Jesus because Jesus loved the father and obeyed his word, even when that meant dying on the cross. But when God raised Jesus from the dead, something radical happened in this spiritual warfare. Since the time of Adam, all of humanity was subject to the kingdom and authority of Satan because no one was able to obey God. Satan seemed to be victorious. But into this history, Jesus comes and defeats Satan at every point and he obeys the Father. And because of that, God raises Jesus from the dead and gives him all authority in heaven and on earth. Matthew 28. So now, the story is flipped upside down. Now the kingdom of God is advancing with the authority of Christ, the authority to defeat the kingdom of Satan. Jesus had crushed Satan and his power, but we must understand, the warfare is still ongoing. It's still ongoing. 1 Corinthians 15.24 says, it talks about the end time. It says the end will come. And when the end comes at that time, what's going to happen? It says Jesus will hand over the kingdom to God, the Father, after, see, after Jesus has destroyed all dominion, authority, and power. After. So this is what Jesus is doing now. The kingdom of God, through Jesus and the church, empowered by God, is to advance and destroy the kingdom of Satan. The warfare still exists. The difference, the difference is that Jesus holds the authority. So then in the biblical framework, we see that there are two kingdoms, two kingdoms at work. There's the kingdom of God, established through Jesus, and then there's the kingdom of Satan, and that's it, two kingdoms. Between the two kingdoms, there's warfare, and we all sit right in the middle of this war. We're, we are all in it, no matter whether we feel it or not. Since we're in this battlefield, it's, it's important for us to understand how this battle is fought. What is the devil's weapon? What is our weapon? 
And the basic answer is this. We fight in this warfare the same way Adam and Eve were supposed to fight, in the same way that Israel was supposed to fight, and the same way that Jesus did fight. The devil's weapons are lies and deception. He's the father of lies. John 8, 44. He speaks lies into our minds. Lies about us, lies about others, and lies about God. Our weapon is the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God, Ephesians 6, 17. Into our minds, the Spirit speaks truth, and the Spirit brings life and peace, Romans 8, 6. So when Jesus says, if you love me, keep or obey my commands, we must understand it within the framework of spiritual warfare. He's saying to choose to love him, to love, obey him, and not the words of the devil. Just as Jesus loved the Father and obeyed the Father. For many of us, when we think about obe obedience to God, we think about it as like battling our flesh or our sinful nature. And not as um, battling against an enemy. The reality is that both are going on at the same time. Because the lies of the enemy get spoken to, into our minds, into our lives, and also into our society. And it latches onto our broken sinful natures, seeking to get us to obey Him. We fight against the lures of the flesh and against the lies of the enemy through listening and obeying the right words. The truth, the word of God. This is how we defeat the devil. We obey Jesus' commands and so show that we love Him. Now to the question, what commands? What command? If we're to keep his commands, uh, what commands is Jesus talking about? Of course, we could generalize it and say, you know, well, all of it, you know, the whole Bible, of course, and that's true. But I want to get a little bit more specific because I believe Jesus is getting specific. If we skip to the next chapter, chapter 15, verses 10 to 13, I'm going to read that for us. Jesus says this, If you keep my commands, you will remain in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commands, and remain in his love. So far, very similar to chapter 14, what we read. Okay, I have told you this so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be complete. My command is this. Okay, here we have to pay attention here. Love each other as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, to lay down one's life for one's friends. Love each other as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, to lay down one's life for one's friends. Lay down one's life. This seems like an impossible command to follow, to value someone else's life, even maybe even more than our own. Um, before we talk about whether it's even possible to live this way, I want to talk about the command itself. Okay, The command itself, love each other, even to the point of being able to lay down our lives for one another. Why this particular command? And it's because this kind of love, this kind of sacrificial love, is how God's kingdom operates. It's extraordinary love. Love, even if it means laying down one's life for one another, is the way of God's kingdom as we see in the life of Jesus. On the other hand, Satan's kingdom operates through division and death. John 8, 44-45. So Jesus is speaking with the Pharisees here, and he says this, You belong to your father, the devil. 
and you want to carry out your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning, not holding to the truth, for there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks his native language, for he is a liar and the father of lies. The devil speaks lies, and his kingdom operates through division, hatred, and killing. Jesus speaks truth, and his kingdom operates through sacrificial love. The two kingdoms very different from each other and are at war with each other. So then how does God's kingdom penetrate into and destroy Satan's kingdom? I believe two things must happen. First, the people who bring God's kingdom, that's us, that's the church, uh, must proclaim the truth of God into the places where Satan's lies persist and are destroying people's lives. Proclamation of truth. The second, the people who bring God's kingdom, again, that's us, must obey God's command. That is through loving one another, even at great cost to ourselves. We as a church, you know, empowered by God, destroy the divisive and murderous ways of Satan. We are kingdom bringers. We gain victory through proclamation of truth and through obedience. That's how we are to fight in this spiritual warfare. <clears throat> Here, I want to touch on the issue of um, that's very current to us in life, in our time, and it's the issue of racism and the dividing walls of hostility. For me, I believe as a church, the primary way, not the only way, but the primary way we ought to think about this issue of racism and other, even other social injustices is through the lens of spiritual warfare. Why? We've already seen, seen that there are two kingdoms operating in this world. The kingdom of Satan speaks lies and deception to further his kingdom objectives, division, hatred, and murder. The kingdom of God proclaims truth to further God's kingdom objectives, which is reconciliation, love, and peace. By the fruit, you can tell whose kingdom or whose word is being followed and obeyed. Wherever you see the fruits of division, hatred, and murder, we know that the kingdom of Satan is forcefully at work. There's darkness. So then if the kingdom of Satan speaks lies and deception to further his kingdom objectives, what are the enemy's lies? Especially when it comes to this, what we see racism and racial injustice, what are some of the lies? And I'm just going to name a few core ones. Um, there's a lot, but just some things I see as very core to this issue. Lie number one, some people's lives are more valuable, are more significant than other people's lives. You could divide that by socioeconomic status. Maybe a homeless person versus a CEO of a company. Okay, You could divide that by color, the color of your skin, race. Um, whether you're, you know, black or um, brown or Asian or white or whatever. Uh, you could divide that by many, many different ways. But this is the lie. The lie is that some people's lives uh, are more valuable or significant than others. And if you look in the hist in history, at least when it comes to race, uh, we know that in Europe, this lie was spoken over and over again. When they were beginning to infiltrate into Africa and, and enslave the Africans, the black Africans, uh, this lie was told over and over again that white Europeans' lives were advanced, more advanced, and therefore more significant or more valuable. 
So this lie gets penetrated into the society. Uh, lie number two, it's okay to use and abuse some people in order to gain something for yourself. It's okay to get ahead at the expense of others. See, once we devalue someone's lives, we can use and abuse them for our own gain, whether intentionally or not. And then there's lie number three. So other people's problems are not your problems. Other people's problems are not my problems. It's a divide. It's a, it's a lie that divides and separates people from one another. See, when lies are believed in by a group and they start living out of them, what happens? When that happens, you start to see systems in place that support those lies. For example, uh, when we were living overseas, we saw uh, lies that certain gods, you know, certain gods can give you fortune or success. These lies get believed in by a group and then they, they become systems. They become these local temples where people go displaying these gods in every single village where people go and sacrifice to these gods hoping for, you know, success or fortune. These lies become their lifestyle. In our case, when we think about um, racism uh, and uh, the lies that I just mentioned, you know, these lies, they can create systems. And we see it in history. They create systems like slavery, systems like segregation, uh, other kinds of systemic racisms, or even other, other, these lies can lead to other things like sex trafficking networks. And I would even say that these systems can encourage economic disparities or global hunger. I believe that these are the kind of things that Paul is referring to when he says that we are at war against the dominions, against the principalities, against the powers of the devil. Satan's methods are obvious. He speaks lies. And once these lies get believed in and people start obeying them, they become these systems and these dominions and these principalities that perpetrate, that further Satan's kingdom ways, division, hatred, and murder. And eventually people just get used to living that way, blinded from truth and living out of lies. Satan's kingdom ways become the norm. And it is into this darkness, into this divisive and murdering kingdom ways of Satan, that God's kingdom is bringing light and defeating Satan. I said earlier that the church, we, you know, the church, the church is the kingdom bringers. And that we gain victory through what? Proclamation of truth and through obedience. So first, we have to speak God's truth into the sea of lies. And one of these truths, especially when it pertains to racism and racial injustice, is this. Every single life, every single life is significant. Every life matters to God. You know, black lives are precious. Brown lives are precious. Asian lives are precious. White lives are precious. Every single life care, you know, carries the image of God. And part of the reason why some people say, you know, black lives matter is in response to the sad reality that black lives haven't mattered for too long. For too long. The lies of Satan has enslaved people's minds for too long, saying that black lives are less valuable. From slavery to Jim Crow laws, and even now in how the lie has evolved and infiltrated into how different systems work. Like in the criminal justice system where we see a disproportionate number of black men. Or in housing where many black communities uh, were just simply cut off from uh, 
own, you know, owning their homes because they were cut off from getting capital, um, and where banks worked against investing in their communities. Remember, by the fruit, you can see whose word is being obeyed and followed. Satan's lies don't die easily. He doesn't want them to. The lie that black lives are less valuable or less significant didn't just die when the Civil War ended. They evolved, they infiltrated, but at the core, the lie is still the same. The lie is that some people's lives are more significant or more valuable than others. And in this spiritual warfare, in this spiritual warfare, God's people must reject Satan's lies and proclaim to ourselves and to others God's truths, one of which is that every single life, including black lives, is significant, precious, and valuable to God. Um, sometimes God speaks to me through dreams. You know, and and right before the killing of George Floyd, um, God gave me a dream. Actually, he gave me two dreams, but with regard to the um, uh, the black community. But in one of the dreams, I saw an older black man uh, whom I knew. His leg was hurt. So I went over to him in my dream. I put my hand on his leg and prayed for healing. And to my surprise in my dream, I was surprised about this. Nothing happened. You know, I thought it was strange. And so I did it again. I put my hand on him. And in my dream, as soon as I put my hand on him, there was like a vision. And in my mind, in my mind's vision, I saw faces of black men flash through my mind one by one. It just flashed through my mind. It just kind of like scrolled through one by one. People I didn't know. It was just black men. And as soon as I woke up, the Spirit of God spoke to my heart. And he said, do you love them? Do you love them? And interestingly, my response was, um, it was a response that just kind of came up. I didn't, I wasn't planning on this response. It's just what my heart just said at the time. It said, I said, I don't love them any more than any, and, and, and I don't love them any more than anyone else. Like, for example, whites or other Asians. I guess it's neutral. I guess it's neutral. And the Spirit of God spoke again. I felt him say in my heart, do you love them? And in my spirit, I knew immediately what God was saying. He was saying, how do you see them? Do you see these black men as valuable, as precious, as beautifully and wonderfully made, as intelligent? How do you see them? See, this brought me to repentance. God was saying, the way I see, you know, people in general and black men in particular must go beyond neutral. Must go beyond neutral. We all have a history when it comes to race issues. You know, mine goes back to the 80s when I grew up in LA where there's a strong tension between the black community and the Korean community. Um, that's, that's the, that's the environment I grew up in. And then there was the Rodney King riots in the early 90s. And my dad's gas station was right in the middle of it in, in LA. And it was heavily impacted by the riots. That's my history. I grew up with this. And all the things that the Korean community said about blacks, and I'm sure there was lots of things being said about the Korean community by the black community too, uh, both ways. We all have some kind of history with race and racism how we see ourselves even, our own color, 
as well as how we see people of other color. But God is in the business of healing our history. He's in the business of healing our eyes so that we see all people, all people as significant, as precious, as valuable. That's God's truth. Second, the way the body of Christ pushes into and defeats the enemy is through obeying God's command. We talked about that. So proclamation, truth, and obedience. Uh, and particularly this, part, this command, love one another, even at great cost to oneself. Obedience to this command is the way we tear down the dividing walls of racism and other injustices. So then what does the sacrificial and costly love look like? Fortunately, Jesus gives us, gave us a story that helps us to answer this question. And the story is the story of the Good Samaritan. And I'm not going to read the story, but in, um, in the story, there was some person uh, who was beaten up and people, someone, someone stole all his things and he was lying on the streets. Um, there were some religious leaders who came and who went around him, didn't really help him. But a person came, a good, we call him the Good Samaritan. Uh, the Samaritan man came and he met the person's needs, felt needs by giving of his time, his energy, and his money. He was loving his neighbor as he would have wanted to be loved if he were in that person's shoes. See, he was loving his neighbor as he would have wanted to be loved if he were in that beaten man's shoes. Are there people in our church or in our community who have experienced greater hardship due to the history of racism or other injustices? Are there people who have experienced greater oppression or difficulty? What would it look like to get beside them and embrace them and say, you matter to me, your life is significant. And then to give up our time, our energy, and even our finances, just as the Good Samaritan did. See, love must look like drawing close to people, not walking around at a distance, especially the oppressed and the marginalized, saying that they matter to us, embracing them and meeting felt needs, even if the costs are great. And most of the time, we won't know what people's felt needs are unless we actually draw close to them. And as we draw close, opening ourselves to embrace, to love sacrificially, you know, that's just as Jesus commanded us to do, even if there are great costs. And I believe this kind of love will directly oppose Satan's divisive ways and bring God's kingdom into the places where darkness currently reigns. Now to the last question. Um, the first question was, why does Jesus give us the command, if you love me, keep my commands? The second was, then what commands? And the last question is, how do we keep his commands? How do we keep his commands? Where do we get the ability to obey Jesus and his command? This kind of extraordinary love that Jesus calls us to, this kind of costly love that Jesus calls us to, it's impossible in our own strength. And in our passage, uh, we see two ways that Jesus gives us the strength to obey. The first is the presence of the Spirit. And the second is union with the Son. We need both. Okay. So first, uh, we are given the presence of the Spirit. In John 14, 26, Jesus says, But the Advocate, 
or the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, will teach you all things and will remind you of everything I have said to you. The Spirit here is an advocate, helper. What does He help us to do? He, he helps us by reminding us of the truth so that we can reject the lies of enemies, lies of the enemy. He helps us to fight in this spiritual warfare. How do we hear the voice of the Spirit? Well, there are so many ways we hear the voice of the Spirit, including so many different ways that the Bible talks about, including things like prophecy and dreams and visions. Um, God definitely cert- certainly does speak through those means. And I, I even shared one even just a, a few minutes ago about how God spoke to me through a dream. And all these are kind of adds to the different layers of communication from God. But the most authoritative way, uh, authoritative way we hear the voice of God is through reading and studying the Word of God. We must spend time in the Word. And this is not simply to gain knowledge or to grow in pride. You know, we spend time in the Word so that we draw close to God, to surrender to Him, and then be equipped for warfare. So in a very real way, the Word of God is like a warfare guide. And and so it makes sense that the more, the more we know the Word of God, the more there is for the Spirit of God to remind us of the Word of God, right? The more we know, there's more that the Spirit of God will remind us of the Word of God. So the Spirit will remind us and help us in our spiritual battle. Um, second, union with the Son. And this is the point I'm going to end today's sermon with, union with the Son. Verse 20 says, On that day you will realize that I am in my Father, and you are in me, and I am in you. Jesus is in us, and we are in Him. We have an unbreakable union with the Son. Unbreakable. Jesus has bound Himself to us, so that at every point, we are never alone. It's never just me, Peter. It's Peter in and with Christ. It's never just you. It's you in and with Christ. What does that mean? There are two truths that we two truths that we can draw from this, and I believe these are two very important truths that if we speak it to ourselves and live out of them, the more we'll be able to obey Jesus's commands and destroy the kingdom of Satan around us. First truth is this: at every point, there's forgiveness. At every point, there's forgiveness. This is a truth that, that just comes out from being united with Christ. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Romans 8, 1. See, the power of Jesus' blood to forgive is greater than the power of sin to bring condemnation. The power of Jesus' blood to forgive is greater than the power of sin to bring condemnation. This is so important because one of the devil's favorite lies is to fill our minds with condemnation. You're just a sinner. You will never be the kind of person you want to be. You know, you will never get over this mistake or this failure. You're unwanted. You know, God will reject you because of this. He will never forgive you, etc., etc., etc. And here's the truth. The truth is that the power of Jesus' blood to forgive is greater than the power of sin to bring condemnation. 
You are forgiven at every point. Our lives are eternally bound to Jesus and His work. There's nothing you have done, nothing you have done where Jesus' blood is not powerful enough to bring forgiveness. Nothing. His blood is more powerful. So at every point, there's forgiveness. Truth number one. Truth number two. At every point, there's the Father's embrace. At every point, there's the Father's embrace. Um, at every point, we can enter into our Abba Father's arms. Union with the Son, being united with, the, with Jesus, means that His identity of being the Son of the Father becomes our identity. We become children of God. Romans 8 talks about that. Before Jesus did any ministry, when he was baptized, the Father spoke from heaven in an audible voice. And he said this, This is my Son, whom I love. With him I am well pleased. And then right after these words, Jesus went into the desert to fast for 40 days and then was tempted by the devil. But he had these words, these words of love, these words of affirmation, these words of embrace. And I believe these words strengthened him as he fought the devil in the desert. And the question I want to ask you is, do you hear these words for yourself? You are my son. You are my daughter, whom I love. With you, I am well pleased. See, some of us at this point might think of ways in which you feel like God would not be pleased with you. And disbelieve this and not, don't believe this. But we know from the word that there is no condemnation, no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. The righteous requirements of the law is fully met in us. See, Romans 8 talks about that. We can, you guys can go and read that. Jesus' blood is more powerful to forgive. See, being united with the Son means that the love and the embrace Jesus experienced with the Father, that same kind of love is extended to us. These words that came from heaven for Jesus to hear, yes, they were for Jesus in that time, but in a real way, because we are united with Jesus, that same love, that same affirmation, that same acceptance comes to us because now we are with Jesus. We're bound to him. And just as these words were so important for Jesus as he headed into warfare with Satan in the desert, we have to be hearing these words too for ourselves as we encounter spiritual warfare in our own lives. You are my son. You are my daughter. I love you. I am pleased with you. You're mine. We're right in the middle of this spiritual warfare. The kingdom of God is advancing through us the church, to destroy the divisive and murdering ways of Satan by the power of God's love. And I believe, I believe, believe in this time, I believe in this generation, God wants to raise up his church. He wants to strengthen us. He wants to establish a mighty church 
But as we saw in Israel, our might is not dependent on our skills or abilities, or even the size of our congregation. It simply rests on obedience. And God wants to take us there, to that place of obedience. And the way we get there is through knowing and experiencing the Father's love, His forgiveness for us at every point, His embrace for us at every point, having been united to His Son. Let me pray for us to end. Thank you, Father, for all the amazing things you have done for us. Thank you for uniting us with your Son. Thank you for empowering us in your Spirit so that we can fight in the spiritual warfare. And thank you that in the end, you will be victorious. We entrust ourselves into your hands. Help us to hear your words, Jesus, and to obey your words. Help us to experience the Father's love as you did. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.